the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now, back to Lifeline. We are back. We are on the other side of 6 o'clock, 6.06 p.m. to be exact. And uh, my feet are on the terra firma of America, my home, away from home, and back home, and with you again. And uh, uh, thank you, Ellen, for that call. Let me say something before I go to Mark on line number one. I'm going to tell you guys something. Now, this is going to be tragic, but I have to tell you. I am a food connoisseur. I love to eat. All right. Um, like to try almost everything that moves and does not move. If I can hold it down and eat it, I'll eat it even if it's moving. Um, I just love the food channels. That's just what I do when I'm bored. If, you know, once the Warriors lost, I mean, get over it. Okay. Christ is still on the throne. I'm happy. Uh, the gospel's still being preached. I'm saved. Folks are getting saved and folks need to be saved. So we are all right. Okay. They'll, they'll come back, but switch it to the food channel. Learn something about cuisine, cuisine here, cuisine there, cuisine everywhere. But I'm going to tell you a secret. I discovered that having traversed about 12, 13 different cities in several of the nations there in Europe for three weeks now and desperately looking for indigenous cuisine that would be unique to that particular area. I rarely found something that I so thoroughly enjoyed that I was able to mark it out and say nowhere in the world is it this good. I'm not kidding. I mean, from croissants to sandwiches uh, to desserts, even to pastas. Oh, my goodness. I love Rome, love Italy, love Barcelona, love, love it, love it, love it. Right. And all the different islands. But the pasta was always my wife called it the, the forget the term uh, where the pasta is made dense. It'll come back in any event. You don't you don't cook it that much. Put it in, and after a few minutes, pull it out. Uh, La dente, something like that. Anyhow, you can you can text me, Barbara, or you know, put it on my phone. Let me know the word. Um, and it was hard. Now, why do I want wonderful, creamy, you know, Parmesan cheese with meat sauce running all over the top of of uh, noodles, and uh, and and the noodles are as hard as the meat? I don't. I don't. Also. To be honest with you, with the exception of one thing, the pizza was phenomenal in Europe. Phenomenal. Now, we could learn something about pizza here in America because we do pizza and ours largely is heavy. You know, I mean, heavy. Some people get it. I love thin crust and I don't mind thick crust, but you got to do it in a way where it's not so heavy. 
The Europeans know how to do great pizzas. Rome does great pizza. Uh, They do excellent pizza. Thin crust pizzas. And really, it's all about how careful you place the different meats and vegetables and and sauces and cheeses on it um, to where it is a delight. It is light and it is fluffy. And it that part was wonderful. But I'll tell you, I was coming home with my wife and I was saying, you know, Barb, uh, I really wasn't feeling the food. I'm going to tell you the best place to go to get really good food, really good cuisine. It's America. Yep. We cook really good food here in America. I just want you to know, okay, we do it right. We cook well. See, what is America? But a melting pot of all kind of peoples who already come from those different parts of the world, right? And we're here now. We've had to experience with bringing our own cultures here and doing a little uh, Jamaican here and doing a a little Trinidarian here, uh, doing a little Scottish here, doing a little English here. You know how we mix it all up, but we have gotten the, the, the balance between presentation and content and flavor way better. I can tell you that from experience way better in many cases in our European brethren. It's just bland, sometimes hard, looks good. It's in the window looking good. But when you take a bite into it, you say something's missing. That was the only sad part. All right, let me go to line number one and talk with Mark in San Jose. Uh, Mark, what say ye today? Well, I was very glad that the president uh, did not hit Iran, you know, over a $50 drone, you know, got shot down 20 miles off of Persia. Right. Very glad. You know, Tucker Carlson is really good. He's the best over there on Fox News. And sometimes I wonder about these these so-called conservatives. But, uh, you know, you're talking about end-time Bible prophecy, and there there are various views by good (laughs) brothers, you know, uh, of all three views, uh, how everything's going to pan out. They're four, they're four, they're four. Yeah, did you catch John last week? Yeah, you know, I've been listening to my, my brother for years on his view. You know that. I'm, I, you know, I have. You know, I have a different view than him on on a lot of his eschatological uh, uh, assumptions and assertions. But right now, as you know, the premillennial dispensational view amongst the Southern Baptists uh, and and many evangelicals is the common staple today. It's like most people, Mark, don't know any other view. And 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 the way, unfortunately, and this is wrong in terms of what we would call. A fair exposition. But once you have the pulpit, you can say it as if there are no other views. And that's what John does. That's what Jeremiah does. Uh, David Jeremiah. And that's what a few other prominent dispensationalists do. Dispensationalists do. They talk like there are no other valid challenging views when, in fact, the premillennial dispensational view is the Johnny come lately view. You know this. It just arrived on the scene a couple hundred years ago by the dubious likes of persons who were caught up into all kind of crazy mess, including Schofield and Darby, if you will. We won't even go into it, but it's enjoying a kind of um, popularism that that dominates the narrative. Now, what people really need to do and then I'll let you, uh, you know, insert your thoughts on it is we really need to have extremely good scholars who set forth all four views because the premillennial dispensational view 
is radically lacking a Christocentricity, in my opinion. Uh, it's much more antichrist-centered. It's much more the centered than it is Christocentric in its uh, in its development. Do you, we really need to hear an amillennial view in a full development of it because amillennialism has 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 need to be developed more fully than it has been historically. We need a uh, a sound historic and preterite view that can play a role in the exegetical nuances of passages that are taken uh, for granted by the premillennialists as well. And we need to hear the postmillennial uh, uh, view as well because Mark. Those views that I just quoted, all millennial, post-millennial, and uh, historic preterism, as well as historic millennialism, which historic millennialism is radically different than premillennial dispensationalism. Radically different. There was a millennial view uh, that began to be prominent in the 7th, 8th, ninth century A.D., but it was never a sort of fragmented dispensational theology that takes into view all of these kind of concrete historical and, and uh, uh, geographical and national factors that many of uh, the dispensationalists are doing today, including Brother John. I love him to death. He's one of my patron saints, and I would uh, stand by him when it comes to preaching the gospel anywhere in the world. But um, those views need to be challenged, if you ask me. So what say ye? Yeah, I really wish uh, John and R.C. would have had a debate on the uh, last days according to Jesus, because I'm reading this book about uh, how Revelation definitely was actually written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, and many Christians fail to really understand the importance of, of that event, because uh, it, now, we have to properly understand... Now, you know you've been... You're, you're, well, I don't know what it is that's got you sounding like you're in a, a meat grinder. What's going on? Are you moving? I'm rolling the hose up. Steam Master, by the way, if you need your carpets cleaned, please dial 264419. <laughs> I'm Mark, 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 you just can't do that. I'm going to give you one minute, though. Uh, now, I, I will say this. Be careful. Don't fall into the slippery slope of a, uh, a pre-70 interpretation of the book of Revelation because uh, there are many good arguments against that set of assumptions. So be very careful, my brother. There are, there are valid uh, inferences that would suggest that there is some legitimacy to the argument, but there are also some serious consequences for holding to it wholesale, so be very careful. Well, actually, the whole thing almost entirely depends upon a statement Irenaeus made uh, who said that Jesus lived 52 years. No, 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 it doesn't hang on that. I know that argument. But it doesn't hang on that. I wish we had more time to talk about it, but it probably would require for the good of the audience, for the good of the many, many people that's listening to you and I speak on the subject of uh uh, 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 the subject of eschatology, including dear our dear brother Irenaeus uh, and his uh, his statement, his faux pas of Christ's fifty two years. That that statement does not demolish the notion that John, John's revelation was written in the latter years of uh, of of the uh, of the uh, AD period of AD ninety to AD ninety two, AD ninety three, AD That does not demolish that. It does bring it into question, but it. it becomes a starting point for conversation, but it doesn't demolish it. Um, But what would you state before I let you go, given the fact that you know that presently 
uh, you know, the airwaves are being dominated by a premillennial dispensational view. What what would you say to that? I don't necessarily agree. I don't even know if uh, our beloved R.C. Sproul would have been competent enough to really uh, debate John or anyone who is uh, really skilled at uh, understanding historic uh, the historic views of eschatology because – you remember John, uh, R.C. debated John on the issue of baptism, and John wiped the floor with him. You do know that. He did. But uh, R.C. would wipe the floor with John on this one. I mean, just to give you a little example, okay. uh, John last week said there was 173,880 days from the command by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. to when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Well, hold on, John. Uh, the 69 week ends at his baptism, not the triumphal entry. I agree with you. Years. I agree with you. You can yeah, stop yeah. right there just because, you know, I don't want you to start putting the people's sleep with numbers. But I know you know this as well as I do, because you would hold the same framework of properly understanding Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, as I hinted to the audience. That has to be the starting ground of which we prophetically begin to talk about a calendar of prophecy leading to the coming of the prince, not the Antichrist. Christ, but Jesus. This is a Christocentric interpretation, and you know that. Yes, sir. And think about this, okay? The uh, the fact of the matter is, is the year is 365.2422 days. So in 483, you'd have 176,411 days. But if you take 73, uh, 2520s, which you would get uh, 176,000 Four hundred. Now think about that. In other words, when when Christ was baptized, remember the Holy Spirit came right, down right. at the end of the 69th week, and God said that was His beloved Son. In all likelihood, that was seventy twenty-five twenties from Cyrus. And that was the 69th week was actually the 70th week if you count a seven-year cycle as twenty-five twenty, which it, is thirty-six days short. Some of that is 666. Which so we, what I'm saying is when we're trying to determine in real time how long three and a half years is, you have to take into consideration how long seven actual years is. Right. I got, years is. I got you. I got you. I got you. You know, I got you. Now, that 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 is that really does. So the component you're talking about before I let you go, the component that you're talking about, Mark, in the discussion of eschatology, uh, having to deal with how to um, establish legitimate timelines that would be exegetically sound, that would be historically coherent, and that would be um, that would be consistent with what we have in terms of what the Bible says is the starting point of the call to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince. Those categories have to be evaluated carefully as part of a litany of things that go into the discussion of uh, end time uh, theology, beginning with the coming of Christ and his baptism and his sufferings on the cross and what the what John called the the lost week which was never lost in our amillennial theology never lost whatsoever as seven years was never lost you and I understand that that last week takes, takes on a much larger than a literal interpretation after the first half that three and a half years which is why you never hear of seven years in the book of Revelation you only read of three and a half years or a time time and a half or as you know at 1260 days which are all saying 
the same thing in different ways. However, I do have to let you know go, but I told you this a while back. You still there, Mark? Yeah. I told you this a while back that the subject is going to come back up because it's unavoidable. And at that point, I'm I'm praying that, you know, you have your numbers ready, have them right, because they've been wrong in the past. And when people are ready to discuss them, be ready to help people understand why your convictions around how to actually do the dating on a biblical level is correct, because too many times the assumptions are holding to uh, uh, number patterns that are not consistent with the way the scriptures would teach us how to do calendar dating. That's a whole nother subject. And John doesn't even remotely discuss how to establish the biblical timelines or all of the various timelines that are out there that scholars have employed for many, many centuries now in an attempt to get an approximation of the dating of events that have already transpired and undeniably accurate and have have laid down patterns for us to look at in the New Testament. But we want to humbly prepare ourselves for that discourse and that discussion in years to come, because if the Lord lets you and I continue to live, which is his mercy, uh, that discussion is unavoidable. Thank you for the call. I'm way overdue. Um, Got to take a break. Two lines open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Two lines open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we're back. The time six twenty five on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host Jesse Gistan. We are talking about uh, eschatology. We are talking about end time subject matters. But I will take your phone calls on things less arduous, less uh, brain challenging, if you will. Uh, less demanding on an intellectual level because the subject of eschatology or in time as intriguing as it is has been largely divisive uh, and unhelpful uh, even with the best of intentions throughout history the advent periods of uh, the 30s and the 40s where we're dealing with World War II uh, uh, and, uh, and, and notions about the world ending only really, uh, gave rise to levels of speculation and, uh, what I would call, um, just, uh, massive, massive, massive infatuation, uh, leading to, again, uh, the kind of merchandising that, uh, folks who are not grounded in the word of God will be, uh, will succumb to by your, uh, entertainment industry, by your, uh, profiteers and many folks who, uh, want, wanted you to know that if you don't have the right eschatology, you might not be saved. If you don't have a, if you don't hold to our view of the world ending at this time, you might not be saved. Forget it. Forget it. Don't ever fall prey to that kind of rushed, uh, hyper speculative, uh, theoretical, opinionated uh, profferings of men who uh, simply recognize that they, they can get a few scared sheep to join their churches and get on their rolls in the name of, you know, the sky is falling. Don't do that. Don't do that. The true and the living God has known that you and I would be living up to this date. June 24, 2019, from eternity. 
He never, never once ever doubted that we would be here because he predetermined it. He planned it, purposed it, and maintained the course until we're here. So all of the speculations, all of the fear-monging, all of the books, all of the arguments, all of the bantering, even of my, my precious brethren today who have the ear of millions of people around the world with their, again, with their premillennial dispensational. I mean, David Jeremiah has done uh, shows and, and programs and uh, just, I mean, 3D video images of the Antichrist and and the war. I mean, down to uh, clothing and gear and sound and all of it is just un- unfair to the beauty and simplicity of the biblical text, which does not at all uh, offer that kind of deeply involved intel the- theatrical um, hyper emotionalism. It's sad that we would succumb to that. Now, yeah, expound the scriptures if you have the ability to expound them. Explain the word of God if you have the ability. But be honest that you're coming from a camp. And your camp is not the only camp. Just tell it like it is, my dear brother. Say, okay, I'm coming from a camp that really just really emerged over the last couple of hundred years. We have not been the dominant camp then, but we're the dominant camp now. And I'm coming from a prism and an an interpretive grid from that camp. Now, that camp is not without uh, its suspicions and its and its gainsayers or its its opponents, because, you know, the authors of that camp are dubious. But nevertheless, this is the prominent view. So we're we're setting forth that view, but there are other views. Now, when you do that, people get to now be more objective about what you're saying and not assume that what you're saying is the only view. But when you don't talk like uh, there are other views, then you are inadvertently hoodwinking the people. Let me go to line number three and talk with Craig in Castro Valley. Craig, are you there on line number three? Craig, what's going yes, on? Yes, sir. I'm here. Uh, the, the word you was looking for was al dente. Al dente. And I that's you right. on that. Uh, I don't know what why somebody want to chew on some hard uncooked noodles. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, that was hard, brother. It was hard. Hey, first of all, hey, Craig. You know Craig, what I do. You Craig, know what I do. Craig. They hey, were big, they were hey, first. They were big. Can you throw this back in the boiling water for a couple minutes, please? They were big and they were hard. And now yep, it, it it looked it good, Craig. They looked it good. Me and Al said, "Ah, man, this is some of the best looking pasta in the world." But once we got to chewing on it, it was already ninety degrees and 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 almost a hundred de- degrees um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, humidity that we we're eating out in the street. And I'm like, I'm chewing way too much for for these noodles to not have already been chopped up and going down my throat. I I couldn't even finish it. And then they're smoking cigarettes all around you. So. <laughs> anyway, I got my, my questions about uh, cremation. Yeah. If if you, well, I guess there's really no way to know for sure if the person's not saved. But if they, you talk to them and you, and they reject the gospel, and they even at, want to be cremated, I'm I'm talking about my father. Um, is it? Is there any uh Nope, you let him be cre- with let him be cremated. Yep, give him what he wants. Give him what he wants. Yep, give him what he wants cuz it doesn't matter. Okay. Yep, I mean that, that's a, right. that's a sad reality because what we don't want to do um is what we don't want to do is 
uh, you know, impose a hope uh, for him that he did not confess. That's that's what we do yeah, when we uh, when my my uh, grandma died. They got we got plots for everybody, you know, at the cemetery in Sacramento. That's the right thing about. to do. That's the I right thing. I don't even want to be in this place. I just cremate me and throw some ashes in the ocean. Right. So that's uh, what he said. I guess I guess I tell him I'll take his spot then. Right. Well, no, you're and not going to do that. You know, one day I'm hoping you know that I get a chance to talk to him some more about the gospel, and then you know. Well, here's the thing. I'm gonna share. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the the real skinny here, and then I'll I'll let you go because you're you know your question is very common with us, and I tell I tell sons and daughters and and you know people who have parents who are talking like that, or even wives who will have husbands talking like that, or husbands who will have wives. I'm just burn me up and scatter my ashes across the sea. Uh, you're talking silly, first of all. You're talking irreverent. You act like you own yourself. Uh, you're denying eternity. You're denying the fact that you will see God. And you will see God in your flesh in spite of uh, a testimony of annihilation or nihilism is what, you know, burning to ashes and scattering them abroad doth indicate you somehow want to escape. You're not going to escape. God's going to bring every particle of your body back. And you will stand in the judgment. All men will, <clears throat> one way or the other. Some of us will do it, glorifying God in the pattern of the gospel and uh, bodies that anticipate uh, the ultimate redemption. That is what we call the second adoption, the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Um, but while as yet our loved ones who are talking crazy like that are still alive, we pray that God would break their hearts before they die. My, uh, my beloved son-in-law, I've got two, love him to death, right now is presently with his mom, who happens to be on life support uh, at the present, <clears throat> and uh, this is Will, not not Ramil, and uh, we've prayed for her and, 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 and desired her to know Christ all his life, and he had called me yesterday about 6.30, 6.45, getting on a plane to go back to these coasts. And uh, he said, Dad, pray. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm out because she had a stroke and she's she's uh, you know, she's she's the doctor says she's she's leaving. We're going to do an operation. And if it works well, if not, then uh, then we have to pronounce her dead and, and, you know, get on about the business. And I didn't say it to him. But I said it to God after I got off the phone and, and, and prayed my way to sleep because I was exhausted from the trip. I said, Lord, you are merciful because. When a person gets sick, and you've heard me say this before, Craig, it's really a, 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 a time of mercy because God could take us out in a nanosecond, a picosecond. He could just take us out. We could just we could just expire without any space of 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 suffering. Suffering is like the plane landing slowly. And within the space of that suffering, the soul is aware that it's about to transition and all of the stuff that they have been saying in the arrogance and pride and unbelief and hardness of heart up to that time. Well, just, you know, throw me in a bin, bury me, burn me, you know, scatter my ashes to the forward, give me to the lines, give me to, you know, all of that arrogant stuff we say right as that plane is landing, 
we remember everything that God has done out of all the years in which God has given us a testimony about the preciousness of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the necessity of blood atonement in order to establish a right relationship with God. We remember all that. And while my son-in-law's mother is in this limbo state, she could very well be Craig calling on God after all this time, gaining great clarity in the midst of her suffering. See, see, the scriptures are clear, clear in faithfulness. Have you afflicted me that I might learn your statutes? This is why I don't I tell saints, be careful about crying when your loved one is sick, because God could have just took them. Sickness is an opportunity for God, the Holy Ghost, to work on them in them all by himself in the sanctum of their heart and mind and conscience where none of us get to actually witness it or talk about it. That's why we talk to them about Jesus while they're healthy, because once we sow the seed, we can leave the rest up to God. And this is where you and I want to be with our parents who are acting a fool like that, too. That's for you, my dear brother. Thanks for the call. All right. Bless you. Um, let me uh, let me see here. I'm going to take a break and then I'm going to pay some bills because I'm way overdue. Then I'll, I'll talk to Nelson. But I do have three lines open. We've got about 20 minutes before the program closes. I will hear you on the top topic of eschatology. I will hear you on the topic of burial and cremation. Love to talk to you about it. I hope you learned something from a pastoral level on how to deal with loved ones who enter into the crisis of passing where God has given them the mercy of either being in a comatose state or a coma state in which we know they are still operating out of a level of consciousness where they can entertain talking to God, communing with God, and even hear us. Because when they come out of comas, they have testified. We heard you. I heard you, but I couldn't say anything to you. So there's hope while there's breath. Would you not agree with that? I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. We are back. And as I said, three lines open, one 367 If you want to call and chime in on our conversation or bring up a new topic, we've got about 15, 20 minutes. one 367 Jesse Gist stand back with you in the Attila DeHaan and enjoying our conversation thus far. Let me go to line number two and talk with Nelson and San Mateo. Nelson, how are you? Hi. I'm so happy that you enjoyed your trip there. Did. Um, yeah. A um, couple of things. I, I, um, I went to a co-worker's funeral memorial service at a Buddhist temple in um, um, San Francisco. Recently? <laughs> It, yeah, it really ticked me and my um, other coworker off, um, who were friends with him, because they did so much chanting. Of course, there was no body there, and on right. um, this memorial service, pictures, and I believe it was cremated. And um, they they said some of you are going to find it confusing all the chanting, and th- that was bad enough. But then um, my friend spoke. Um, and he um, was saying all this thing about him. And, you know, the guy who passed away was a Trump supporter, and he owned, he, he owned guns and everything. He, he had, you know, he had very conservative views, you know, and, uh, and he really, like, was a very strong gun advocate and Trump supporter. And, and so was this um, friend who spoke, who, who was um, Mexican-American. The guy who passed away was white. Okay. Um, and and um, But they, they made him hurry up and said, you know, we really got to go. We really got to close. And he didn't really even speak that long. And they didn't like the fact 
that, you know, he had these conservative views and everything because, you know, and, you know, they, uh, you know, the, the way people do funerals, I mean, I guess they're, the people who oversee it, you know, they're going to have it their way and, um, you know, and it's not going to rub everyone the right way. And, you know, especially, you know, somebody who's not a Buddhist, they're not going to appreciate all that chanting that they did. And then to have him, you know, stop his um, remarks about how this guy was our friend, you know, but you took all that time, you know, just chanting just forever, <laughs> you know. I take anyway. it. I take it that you you were not edified by by that particular memorial service in a Buddhist context. No, I wasn't. And, and, and Buddhism is one thing that you know people can't generally tolerate because you know, generally speaking, they're not trying to kill anybody and blow stuff up, and you know, not that all Muslims are doing that either. But um. But they do persecute Muslims in Thailand, though. Oh, there is there is a militant strain, Nelson, in virtually every uh, formative religion in the world. You know that. That's a good point. That's, that's a so, good point. So, so all I'm saying is, once you politicize religion, you're going to have a militant strain that's operating out of self-preservation. Uh, that's just the way that it is. You're going to find it in virtually every formative religion, no matter if it's Buddhism or Hinduism, shamanism, uh, or whatever the other uh, marginal religions of the world. They're doing it out of self-preservation. You're going to have a carnal element in it, period. But when you're talking about uh, a Buddhist funeral, you're talking about a funeral service that's riddled with a kind of antinomy of confused philosophy that's rooted in nothing but opaque uh, sophistry. Uh, And then you're talking about chanting that has absolutely no sound philosophical or coherent, uh, what we would call teleological thought. It basically is a bantering that almost is equivalent to this crazy thing that one would assert would be speaking in tongues is babble and uh and no one can ever be edified by babble and, and, and okay babble all right for about a minute and then will you let people get up to the microphone and talk intelligibly about a human being who's created in god's image who lived a life of some relative purpose so that we can connect let's connect around this individual on a eulogistic level i mean he's a human being so he's got a bunch of mis- foibles that he made all right but let's let's honor his life by talking about some of the good things which is by the way what your buddy was trying to do uh, but they didn't want to hear it because they didn't want to be reminded that, that a Buddhist could be a gun-toting Trump supporter, too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, you know, um, so funny. Getting, getting that um, debate with MacArthur and um, Sproul on baptism, I, I think, yeah, MacArthur's going to be a better debater. Um, he's more dogmatic and people and more authoritative. And people like that. That's why they like him, because he comes off as absolute. They think he's the best teacher. And I say, well, you know, he's a good teacher when he teaches stuff that's true, but he, there's no way he's a better teacher than Sinclair Ferguson, D.A. Carson, or R.C. Sproul. It's just not true. No, I, I would disagree with you on, on this particular category. First, I would agree with you that he comes off dogmatic. And, and I said that earlier about if you take a position— 
and you talk as if that's the only position, then you are going to be considered legitimately guilty of dogmatism. Uh, and he will do that. Baptists have a tendency to do that. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and John will do that, particularly with eschatology. And there will be other things he will have done that with. I will take uh, issue with you around Sproul. I've listened to Sproul all my life. And Sproul is, is, is a gifted philosopher, a gifted expositor, but he is not a good debater whatsoever. Uh, he just does not handle it. And everybody doesn't have the gift of debating uh, uh, Nelson. They just don't. So I would never really want to put Sproul in the hot seat of debating uh, with John on these things. I would take men that I know that have the the real healthy gift of debating like like James R. White uh, and, and deal with, with John MacArthur on that. Other men who have the ability uh, Vody Bauckham has the ability to do it too exegetically and expositorily debate. And I can give you a list of men like you just did you gave a few others too uh who would do a much better job of of debating john on these on these matters but but our see never came off to me as really the kind of person that is ready to jump in there and do a kind of uh uh athanasius debate against you know arius um but in any event i gotta stop because i gotta pay some bills man Good to hear from you. Yeah. Got one line open. Actually, no, all four lines if you're on a call. Otherwise, when I come back from the break and paying bills, I will banter us out of the show today. Looking forward to talking with you again next week. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we are back. The time is 6.53. And uh, I don't have any callers on the line. Don't mind that. Um, we had a great day. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good getting back behind the wheels. It took me about three days to actually recover. I wasn't so much tired. Uh, you get a little jet lag when you're doing 20 hours. I was talking about South Carolina only because we got off the plane from Rome after getting on the plane in Rome at uh, around 11 a.m. on Tuesday. Was that Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, I think? No, it was Tuesday. Um, and um, in Rome, I think we're ahead. So we flew and, uh, yeah, Tuesday. We flew for 12 hours, about 12 hours, landed uh, in San Francisco and then got off the plane. <clears throat> and it was the same day, Tuesday, in America. <laughs> and we got a couple hours sleep and we had to jump on another red eye to go to South Carolina for my baby girl. You guys know Trin. Trinity was um, one of the singers with her special group of singers that would come in and do the Christmas singing and sometimes the Easter singing, uh, the modrigals, if you guys remember them. Uh, she she graduated from her um, early training um, in, in the military, uh, South Carolina, Fort Jackson is the place where you train all of our world renowned uh, American military servicemen and women. <clears throat> and she graduated with with uh, with flying colors. And uh, you talk about transformation, great transformation of character and uh, decorum and uh, how they carried themselves. I recommend it for every young man and every young woman, even if they just took you for a few weeks cleaned you up, straightened you up, showed you how to behave and how to show decorum and respect and uh, chivalry and uh, and honor and, and uh, acknowledge your elders. It would do a great, 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 great deal of good if uh, our young people could go through that kind of training in preparation for uh, for for the real world, college or uh, life in general. 
Now, having said that, I'm thinking about college. College is a catastrophe today on the level of ethics, the level of morals, the level of decorum, the level of respect, the level of understanding upline and hierarchical structures and and family. It is absolutely a bastion of rebellion against everything good and orderly relative to, um, again, a coherent society that respects upline and parents and grandparents and and superiors. Uh, Military can help you with that in terms of preparation. It would really do our world a good, a lot of good. Our young people, a lot of good. They do not have the skill sets of knowing how to acknowledge elders when they come into their presence and and, and know how to position themselves to to honor them in terms of, uh, you know, saying hi and bye, ma'am, sir, etc. It was so refreshing to watch hundreds of young people call us ma'am and sir and respect us and, 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 and get out of the way or be so quick to help. Just absolutely stunningly refreshing to see that. And of course I had a day and a half myself and my wife with our, our baby daughter and she was just brilliantly transformed along those lines. Uh, she took us out in her dress blues and we did South Carolina. Uh, like I said, some Jamaican food and we did the zoo and we did some desserts and, uh, cause she had been in boot camp all this time eating quality desserts, which is what we have in Ken and Trina. Just, we are carb, carb animals. And so, uh, we explored South Carolina's goodies and had a great time before uh, we sent her off to Texas, where she gets refined even more before she enters into the medical field. They're bantering right now online, my wife and daughters and Trent, about her being some kind of technician, medical training, N-R-E-I-T personnel, because uh, she's taking medical school very seriously, <clears throat> as is the case <clears throat> with our other last daughter, Gloria, as well. So we will have some uh, competent uh, medical advisors in the community here in a little while. But I'll tell you, I was utterly impressed with Fort Jackson. I mean, really, if you're wondering what your child should do, they are aimless. They are listless. They are wandering. They are dubious. They're not clear on what they should do. The military can prepare them for drawing lines in the sand of how they should carve out their life. Um, you should really take that under consideration. Forget the propaganda, forget the noise, forget all of the hype and, and put them, encourage them to consider and explore the military to prepare them to handle the world. They will come out equipped with skill sets to hold their shoulders high, walk in a, a very firm but not gaudy position, know how to handle adversity, make decisions, and then and speak properly and assess things in a more objective way rather than what's going on with our children in this crazy generation of very bad examples and very bad models. Uh, Very, very bad models. I was super impressed by what I saw there, and I'm glad to be able to share with you for your young people as well if you're thinking about what to do with these young people who seem not to be at all prepared for the real world. Send them to the military as per recommendation by Pastor Jesse Gistin, who have uh, 
family who have done military, son-in-laws who have done military. Mostly all of my leadership, just about all of my leadership, with the, with the exception of a couple, have done military. And uh, <clears throat> it, 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 it's a good thing. Very good thing. Anyhow, I'm glad to be home. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Lord willing, we will get on it next week. Get on it. Get on it. Until then, keep your eyes on Christ. He's the most beautiful thing in the universe. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.